Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Wilshire. I'm a board-certified physician, surgeon, and reproductive endocrinologist. Welcome to my series of podcasts where we discuss medical matters that matter to you. I'll be interviewing top experts in their fields, and we'll also be delving into fascinating backstories from deep within the world of medicine. Hello, welcome to the Dr. Gill Show. This is where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. My guest today is also Dr. Dr. Jerry Heisler. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks for having me on, Gil. Uh, Jerry is what my dad would call a real doctor. He is a, a PhD, and he has 40 years of clinical psychology under his belt. We had different parents because when I got my PhD, my father was a physician. And so my family said, when are you going to become a real doctor? So yeah. we just turned that around. Yeah, my dad was the PhD. Exactly, exactly. Um, you might think, what do relationships in psychology have to do with medical matters? But if you think about it, just for a second, you realize that psychology and relationships have the most profound effects on our health that I can even imagine. You know, um, I, I can't even, uh, you know, th there's so many things I can't even uh, think of one in particular, but it affects your, your overall attitude, what you do, what you do with other people, the types of activities you have with other people, your, uh, your outlook on life is just, just profound. And I can't think of a better person to talk about uh, psychology and relationships, relationships you, uh, here than you, Jerry. Um, I'd also like to mention that Jerry has just written a wonderful book called Relationship Boot Camp. Um, this is near the end of 2022. When did it come out, Jerry? Just several months ago. On it's available on Amazon. Fantastic. Well, I have read your book, and um, I think it has so many good topics to talk about. Uh, I think I told you beforehand, I think there's a lot of meat on the bones here mm -hmm. and a lot of stuff for us to talk about. Right. The style of the book is really non-BS. And people have told me that there's probably 20 books in there. But to cut to the chase, you know, it's, th there's a lot of information, um, case scenarios. People react to that, which I include in the book. But you're right that relationships are so important to health. Um, when I was affiliated with a psychiatric hospital, usually the reason people are committed is because of romances and, uh, and or finances. And so when relationships are going badly, very badly, when people are dumped, they often become suicidal, which of course is an important health issue. It's one of the leading causes of death for people of many ages. Yeah, and it can also lead to uh, destructive behaviors, uh, addictions. Uh, oh, my goodness, all the stuff that I, I hope to learn more from you today. When you look at relationships, there, there's two parts. There's yourself, and then there's the other person. And uh, one of the things I thought was really important is in the beginning of this book, you talk about improving oneself. And even you bring up some stuff um, was mentioned by Freud about what he thought about uh, depression. And it came to a bunch of uh, uh, 
issues about oneself that uh, uh, pertains to self-awareness on one level. Uh, another level of what people would call, I guess, your, your uh, emotional quotient or, or uh, emotional insight. Is that uh, the term you would use? Well, it's not a term I typically use, but certainly it's hard to be in a relationship unless you believe that if someone gets to know you and gets to know the real you and gets close to you, that they're not going to reject you, that there's something about you. And in the book, what I describe is that really the most important parameter is your essence. And essence is what a blind person can appreciate about you. You'd be surprised how often when I would see couples and I would play the newlywed game of on the count of three, tell me what you think her essence is or what his essence is and have her write it down on a piece of paper. And also write down what you, you think it is for yourself and for your spouse, how people don't have a good idea sometimes of what their partner's essence is or what their own essence is, unless you have a good idea. Uh, what can a blind person appreciate about me? And if you think if a person gets close to you, that they're going to abandon or reject you, then of course you're not going to put both feet in the water. You might put a toe in the water uh-huh. of being in a relationship, but you're going to really react adversely to getting too close, too vulnerable. I talk about the most intimate statement I think you can make is I care about you so much, I love you so much, that I'm frightened by you. Um, Some people would say, I'm angry at you because of how much you can control me, how vulnerable I am, and how much I let you control me. And I'm mad at myself for putting myself in this vulnerable position. So the whole aspect of, can I let someone get close to me? Do I have the confidence? Do I have the insight that you're referring to that I am a person that is capable of giving and receiving love. Yeah, so you, know, you mentioned anger. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing fear as well because you're vulnerable when you get close to exactly. somebody and you open yourself up to that. Wow. So can I ask you a personal question, Jerry? What motivated you to write this book? Well, again, I like to believe as a person who has supervised and taught different groups of people, that I have some clinical ideas, impressions, thoughts, that I wanted to leave a legacy. I just thought that there's enough there that could be original, that I just wanted to have that, you know, on paper. And I'm, I'm really excited by the feedback I get. Uh, by the way, should I call you Gil or Dr. Please Wilson? call me Gil. Gil Please okay. call me Gil, Jerry. Because, That's... you know, usually we're friends and I yeah. will refer to you as Gil. Please. The feedback that I've gotten is very positive that people are getting something out of this. It is worthwhile for them. It's like almost going to a marital counselor without actually physically being there. And that's very gratifying for me because that was the reason. I wrote that. It's just to be helpful. It's why most of us go into healthcare, is to try to alleviate human suffering. And I always had, by the way, a a corrections background where my minor was in um, crime and corrections. 
but as a community psychologist, the idea was to reach out behind the walls of the institution to uh, help people. Fantastic. Now, did you go into private practice sometime after that? Yeah, I was always uh, in private practice. And by later years, it became exclusively private practice. Um, so you've, you've seen and heard, I bet you, everything. Oh, yes. Wow, that must I, I consulted in places like when they closed down Alcatraz, uh-huh. the federal penitentiary, they sent people to Marion, Illinois. And I consulted there, and I had contact with the person they based Hannibal Lecter on. <laughs> and, and it's really interesting. I mean, I came across uh, Richard uh, Steck. It was Steck, not Speck. Mm. Richard mm. Steck. Mm-hmm. Like these killers, um, these mass killers. And it was always interesting to me. You'd think they'd have horns and a tail. Uh-huh. But most are just normal-looking people. Yeah. Uh, most people who commit violent crimes, I, I understand, like, in Missouri, they're classified at level five, which is your highest security penitentiary. And about two out of three of these people did what they did in a blackout, that they really uh-huh. don't even know what they're doing. And again, part of the reason people do self-medicate, which you alluded to before, yeah, uh, it's because of relationships that... I think when a person is happy relationally and happy, let's say, sexually in their relationship, their view of life is very different. Very different. But when, everything. But when it's not and you start self-medicating and you get to the point of blacking out, which is not a joke, one thing I really want our watchers and listeners to realize because I hear a lot of young people on our campus, and we're basically on campus here, mm-hmm. is come the weekend, I plan to get blackout drunk. Yeah. And no, 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 no. Serious crimes go down. Not only yeah. that you commit, but that happen to you. Yeah, so um, in, my, in my world too, you, uh, it was the goal to train in an inner city hospital someplace where you had really traumatic stuff so that when you went out into practice in the suburbs, you'd pretty much seen oh, everything, and you were I mean, very well prepared for it. L.A. County, you're probably aware of L.A. County, I would assume. Wilshire Boulevard. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You work the ER at L.A. County, you're going to see blood. Yeah, yeah. Very, Amazing. very different. Very interesting experience. Just, you know, it's a heavy Chicano population. And you learn about cultures. Like, for example, one thing I learned clinically working with them is when they experience supernatural, like ghosts, very normal. Mm. You don't look upon that like you would in Colombia if someone said, I had contact with the supernatural. Yeah, you mentioned culture. Um, We're probably going to jump around here a lot. Sure. I certainly plan on talking about a lot of this stuff in your book. But something uh, that I have found uh, fascinating is that here in the United States, and maybe Western culture, probably more of a, of a United States thing, is that a lot of relationships and love is based on what I would call puppy love. That first, that first blush, that first attraction, the, those first feelings. And you hear these songs about, you know, after the love has gone, mm-hmm. you know, these first 
romantic stuff, the attraction, the sex, whatever it is. And then when you get to the relationship part where you're vulnerable and whatnot, or the essence starts to come out, you're not compatible, those things go away. One thing I found uh, fascinating is the idea of arranged marriages. We have a, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people from South Asia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what happens is parents get together. The, the, the boy and the girl aren't doing it. The parents are looking for good families mm-hmm. and, and find a good family. And sometimes they say, hey, I found a good family for you. And they have these arranged marriages. And I think if you look at divorce rates, they're no worse, maybe even better. You might have some data here. Uh, to the relationships that form here based on more of these early attractions. I think it's just just fascinating. Mm-hmm. That sometimes your parents, your family picks up a, a more compatible mate than you might at the young age. I'm very aware of a number of people like that. I have neighbors who you would know, I'm not going to name them, but sure. they had an arranged marriage. They come from an Indian culture and they've been together and are they any worse than our marriages? Like you right. said, what brings people together typically? Yeah. And typically for many people, it's lust. I mean, sure. it's said, and I have this saying in the book, the men tend to love women they lust, they lust. and women tend to lust men that they love. So it's a different ballgame going on. But for many people, it begins very often with something that's just lust. And I talk about in the book, how do you differentiate in love or maybe love, love and lust? And there's, there's a great difference. I don't believe many relationships begin until the honeymoon period is over. The old adage is if you put two cents in a bell jar, every time you make love, the first two years you're together, let's say, you spiritually aren't at a place where you believe I'm going to abstain till marriage. Okay. So you're into premarital sex. And we had, we address the advantages and disadvantages of premarital sex in the book. And we'll get to that at, at some point perhaps, but there's some disadvantages to engaging in premarital sex. Uh, but if you put the two cents in the bell jar and then you take a penny out every time after two years, Every time thereafter you make love, you never run out of pennies in the bell jar. Yeah. And from my practice, and perhaps yours, because yeah, this is your area. Sure. You find more of the mechanical, true. yeah. Well, people get to the point where the honeymoon's over, children come, and children are not aphrodisiacs, as you know. Called a cock block for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> We can say anything yeah, we guilt, want. Guilt, no, Gil's son's sitting right here. That's fine. <laughs> but, but children are, they create, they create a lot of stress for a relationship. And I think part of what I, there's a section in the book about, that I carve out about having children. Because I think too often people aren't prepared for what happens to their relationship when they have a child. The mm. sleep deprivation, just the change in roles that that really affects the the changing position of lust in the relationship. If you don't love them for their essence, it can all fall apart. 
Well, what's going to happen between people is there can be a bonfire. And for some people, it's a huge bonfire, Gil. And for some, it's a little twiggy fire. You mean when the relationship is stressed or there's a fight? No, when the relationship starts, like if it's a real lustful relationship, there's a bonfire. There is heat. There is heat. I mean, it is, it's intense. (laughs) And for some people, though, it's a twiggy fire. But what happens over time is if you don't process anger, and we all get angry all the time, people don't understand there's a continuum of anger from one to 10, let's say, that a lot of people think anger means enrage. No. Anger is like when you go outside in in our Columbia, Missouri today, and this is mid-November that we're we're doing this. Uh, The wind chill is maybe 10 degrees, and that's irritating to most people. You drive around, and most people are irritated by their drivers, or coming to a red light. Those low level of anger. Mm-hmm. Some things like politically people are becoming angered one way or the other about either this, an election. The, yeah. either ah. this or that. We just had an election. People watch the news and they get angry. They watch a sporting game and their team messes up, fumbles, you know, and there's this, there's this anger. Well, we have an anger reservoir and there's a threshold here. And as all these things build up and relationally, you, you're living with someone who wakes you up or snores or, excuse me, passes gas right. or you share a bathroom with or you have to be sacrificial with. And so as time goes by, the anger in the anger reservoir rises. And if it's not expressed out, and the way we try to do this constructively is you know, prayer or exercise or talking or there's conventional good ways to deal with anger. But if we don't do that, then we go over threshold. When you start having road rage because you've gone over threshold, you start to know my anger is intense right now. When you start throwing things at the TV set when the chiefs are on, you're over threshold. When you're getting so angry with the news that you're starting to become anxious. In, in our society now, there's so much more people complaining of depression and anxiety disorders. To me, if you're not afraid, what anxiety is, is I'm angry and I'm blocking it. And this is almost the expression of anger if you do that. You try to take your fist and then clamp it like this, that almost emulates being anxious. Being depressed is your anger is going back at you. So relationally, as anger is not being processed, it's like throwing dirt on that bonfire. In some life events, or backhoe on the bonfire. And some life events, like finding out the person's unfaithful, there's a dump trunk on the the fire. The fire goes out. People say, I'm not in love anymore. Next. Next. And you're going to have problems. It was interesting. I just listened to an interview with Michelle Obama, who said the same exact thing just last week, that she wanted couples to know that there are problems. And when you have problems, don't look at, she pointed out her marriage to Barack Obama, which a lot of people idealize, and said, don't think we have this idealized marriage. We do have problems. When you're married, you're going to have problems. Is in a functional marriage, you look 
or solutions to problems together. In a functional relationship, you look for solutions together. If you're in a relationship and you do not have the ability to look for solutions together, you're not in a real relationship. I'm sorry. Takes two to tango. And for oneself, I guess uh, I'm going to go back to what I began to talk about is that uh, uh, your own self-awareness. Um, I'd like to talk about some of the things you mentioned that uh, Freud had mentioned and that you've uh, put into uh, uh, several points here. You mentioned that one way to deal with uh, depression, and obviously if you're not depressed, you'd be a better partner, you can have better relationships. Oh, absolutely. It has something to do which occupies your day. Now, does that, in, in your clinical experience, does that have to be something that's earth-shaking or whatnot? Or it can be no, something? I think if you're there, I talk about different things a, a person can do that helps alleviate depression. You're welcome to read that if you want. There's a, there's a list of things, but one is having something to do, some, you know, someone to love. If it can't be a person, get a pet. You can't get a pet, get a plant. You need things to look forward to. The human yeah. being needs to do that. On this list is you need to get off, I call it the pity pot, because mm. you can sit on the pity pot so long you get a ring around your butt. Right. And go serve, volunteer, give to other people. Don't be so self-contained and consumed by yourself. I think that that is just just a, a nugget if, if – uh... One doesn't bring anything out of this interview uh, apart from that, that being uh, able to serve and, and help other people is, is just a profoundly uh, important part of life and uh, something that I think you and I have both, uh, we've been able to take a lot of bites out of that apple given our uh, professions. Exactly. It's, there, there is so much reward a person gets from serving. It helps another person and it helps someone else. That's the tenet of 12-step. Sure. That, especially when you get to the place of sobriety that you can sponsor, that that helps you and helps them. And typically, it's just this mutuality that goes on. And I, yes, I do hope one of the things that people would take from this is one of the best ways to cope with depression is have something. And by the way, 12-step... Provides many of the things that uh, help you cope with depression. I was one of the few psychologists, at least at that time, that was very pro 12 step. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's looked askance um, within the profession, but it gives you something to do, something to look forward to, a way to get off the pity pot. Um, you, you start dealing with your anger. I don't need to go into all the things in 12 sure, steps. These are universal truths. But there, there's some things. They talk about in 12 steps, something that's important for developing your self-esteem, is they, they talk about taking your personal inventory. And what that's about is you start recognizing your mistakes. It's not to stir up garbage in a garbage can, which, again, that step is misrepresented sometimes. Because sometimes all you're doing is taking the top off a garbage can. But the idea is to put adult eyes on things that happened to you as a child. That's so important because many times we come up with these life strategies when we're children. And we keep that strategy day after day, month after month, year after year. 
that was formulated when we were kind of a irrational, inexperienced child. We keep these life strategies in place. And so to re-evaluate this, to look upon things differently, like this is what I did. Uh, I'm a real believer in, in how you develop feelings about yourself. Is I borrow a, I don't do many techniques, but I did do this, that you write a letter to your seven-year-old or your 10-year-old self as you are now. So Dr. Gill would write a letter to that probably nerdy little boy he was at seven or 10 or whatever. Hyperactive, running around. That felt bad and felt like a dweeb. And you go, or you know, you felt something was your, your fault. Like your parents got divorced or something happened to you. Yeah, my parents were uh, always arguing. Or your parents are, right. whatever it may be. But you, mm-hmm. ex- you use your adult eyes to focus them on your past situations. And you get insight into, well, wait a second, that wasn't my fault. When people feel guilt, shame, and self-anger, they're feeding that anger reservoir. Mm-hmm. And it just creates, again, more anxiety and more depression. And that just cycles. And so how do we break that cycle of being depressed relationally, interpersonally? I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I really wanted a a professional psychologist's opinion of this. Um, I've heard it called old tapes. Mm -hmm. You learn these things as a child and without even thinking about it, you're making decisions, judgments and whatnot. That, that are, I don't know, subconscious or pre-conscious, but you, you have knee-jerk reactions to things based not on an adult rational mind, but these old tapes that you learned exactly. as, as a very young child. And in fact, the next page, you call these life hypotheses. Mm-hmm. And you talk uh, that uh, maybe as a child you were ignored and you may have developed a, a, a hypothesis or an old tape that there's something wrong with you, or you don't deserve what satisfies you. You also mentioned that there may be something wrong with the people around you not giving you what you desire. And you also mentioned that you do not need what you thought you did. So you almost gaslight yourself, say, well, I don't need this or whatnot. Sour grapes. Sour grapes. Right. So please go into this. This is, this is just so profound how it uh, in how we live our lives so how can one reprogram these tapes these buttons that have been installed in us from perhaps before birth well first of all i think it's good for a person to be able to admit what's going on like my first step of a 12 step i keep coming back to this is to admit a problem i'm powerless or life's unmanageable, but admit a problem without feeling guilt, shame, or self-anger. Because if you're, again, guilt, shame, self-anger just loads things up. So you begin with, okay, uh, there are issues. It's okay to have issues. It's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be depressed. That's just part of life. Is, But when people start feeling guilt, shame, and self-anger about being the way they are, that just compounds the problem. How do you I- identify these these tapes? Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one example from the real world. 
um, I think this was a study. They put an ad in a newspaper that it's a job. They, it's a vague description, but they list the salary. Right? Back in the day, $100,000 was a lot of money. <clears throat> similar ad, the pay is $20,000. And then the similar ad is some minimum wage, whatever it was. And if you look at the people that apply, maybe two or three apply for the big one, and they might get dozens or hundreds of applications for the low-wage, minimum-wage job when the information is the same. Interesting. So people have these assumptions, well, I'm not good enough for that, or I don't deserve that, or whatnot. And it, it affects these, these, these incredibly important choices with enormous ramifications in their life. So well, what you're alluding to, again, is when something's happened to you as a child, you do have a decision. It's basically, As a child, you have a decision. It's, it, you start coming up with these hypotheses. Basically, it's, again, I'm okay, you're not okay, meaning the parent is not okay, or you're okay, I'm not okay, there's something wrong with me, or, you know, you're not okay, I'm not okay, which is bad. <laughs> Everything is messed up. And you find that with people who have more severe psychopathology. It's basically, you know, my parents, they, they're not okay, I'm not okay, and I mean, they're bummed out. Or hopefully you want to get to the place of I'm okay, you're okay. And there was a whole bunch of, there were books by Eric Byrne that got into this in the 70s. Right. But the hypothesis which you come to live by is usually, for example, there, there was someone at, at USC Med Center, there was a child that kept banging his head against the wall. And clinicians were going, why is he banging his head against the wall? What is the kid doing? And they couldn't get him to stop this. Well, what we found out is he came up with an hypothesis, which was a reality, that he had a very abusive father. And when the father came to punish him, when he started banging his head against the wall, the father would just say that kid screwed up and leave him alone. So it was superstitious behavior. It was really operant conditioning on his part. He learned, mm. he learned this type of thing. Now, that's a more dramatic example of a hypothesis. But we come up with these hypotheses of, oh, for example, many people, I find this in Columbia as opposed to California, People in California are much more used to people being assertive with them that in here, many people aren't comfortable with assertion. And so when someone is assertive with them, the implicit statement is, you must hate me. Mm. Where in California, it's more people are just assertive. The self-talk yeah. about assertion is very, very different. So you can come up with a hypothesis as a little child, I can't be assertive, I shouldn't be assertive, I should bury things, I should deny things, I should have the ostrich approach, stick my head in the sand. And years and years and years go by and you enter a relationship and people aren't dealing with their issues. They're in denial. They're not capable sometimes of just sitting down and doing what we're doing now, which is communicating. One of the, the real important points in the book is communicate, talk to your partner with our phones and computers and Netflix and everything that people do. 
Years ago, when I was practicing, people who consider themselves happily married will talk to each other face-to-face the way we are. No phone, no TV, no distraction, 28 minutes a week. Somebody measured that. A week. And was that normal? Is that, is that baseline normal communication without well, the, the face phones? Face-to-face. And now with this and everything, it's probably less so. And so I'd ask people who are in relationships, how much time do you spend face-to-face, no distractions, talking? People come up with these hypotheses early in life. I can't, I can't be assertive. And it's time as an adult to put adult eyes on it. That's what I talk about, putting adult eyes on it and reevaluating these strategies. Think of all the people who self-medicate because they're depressed or anxious. Sure. And how they, they did that. And does that work for you? And for some, when the disease is activated, they're powerless. And a lot of people don't understand that. So there's a concrete thing you can do is you can like, I know in my relationship, we can have date nights. We make a date. We're going to have a date night. You're saying you can even be more granular than that and actually arrange for sit down face to face talk. Wouldn't that be something that there is a going to bed routine that people ideally should have where you turn off all the electronics? But wouldn't it be a time not to argue, but to visit, to look at each other? One thing, Gil, that always got me, I would see couples, and you could always tell something in marital therapy. Uh, I would have a couch. And by the way, people didn't lay down on a couch. They would sit on a couch and talk to me. But you could see where the couple would situate themselves on a couch, whether they'd be close or far away. And, they, and, and one of the first things I would do in marital therapy is that many times they would start talking to me. You know, he does this, he does that. And of course, in the one, third person. Yeah, 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 one, yeah, yeah. one of the first yeah. things I would always do and say is at the beginning is I want you to consider and you tell me how do you contribute to your relationship problems? And they're not used to talking about me, you know, then it's like, well, he there. But when they would do the third person, I would say, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's what I want you to do. And again, I don't do many technique things, but I would say, let's say it was Joe and Rebecca. I'd say, I want you guys to be quiet for a minute. And get it over here where you're kind of, you know, at a comfortable distance. But I want you to look in each other's eyes and not talk for 30 seconds. And Gil, you know, first they're uncomfortable because they haven't looked at each other for a while or looked in each other's eyes for a while and just been silent. But you would see tears sometimes and then a smile and you'd see a reconnection with these people. We get so into our electronics that we disconnect. We're not communicating. We're not giving each other what we need. And that gets in the languages of love, which is a whole different issue. Great. So I'm just going to put a finer point on it. In my house, having dinner as a family every night that we can is just crucial. I hear, I don't want to say who it is, but everyone fends for themselves. You know, dinner time, there is no dinner time. Somebody's eating a, some some uh, microwave food in front of their computer exactly. screen alone. Um, exactly. And you have a son that's a great cook. Thank you very much. 
I still want to go back to these old tapes, Jerry. Sure. I see this. I deal with couples who are trying to have babies, and I, I see who pairs up, and sometimes it's very fascinating. And how high you shoot, you know, the, the quality of the person that you're shooting for, I think is profoundly based on these tapes, these oh, old well. tapes of, of self-worth. So I really want you to visit this a, a little more with me. How can a regular person, not psychotic, but a, a regular, basically smart person trying to get through life and improve their life, read books, for example, watch podcasts from, from people who have something to offer, how can one put adult eyes on these early tapes, these assumptions we carry with us into life that affect our decisions and our relationships? Well, what I would first recommend is so much is dependent on our self-talk. That, for example, if someone came in here and insulted us, you know, said something like, you know, you look blah, 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 whatever right. it is. Right. You're going to be upset. Now, there was other cognitive behavior therapists who say, no, 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 it's your internal statements to yourself that make you upset. My approach, which I originated, um, it's you're going to be upset, but now you have internal statements which mediate that. that per they don't know what they're talking about. That person's just a troll. They're having a bad day. If you get to the place that your internal statements, that understanding leads to acceptance, leads to forgiveness, then you're in a good place. And that has to do with yourself. Nowadays, oh my, I'm glad I'm not young and dating. Because there's almost a caste system now. What you're talking about is that people are much more so as I'm, as I'm talking to younger people, that it's almost like, you know, a real hot woman thinks she has to be paired with a hot man, right. that you're not in my caste system almost. And it's even more so than when I was a child, which is different than, than when you were a child. So what happens if you want to start to try to have a good relationship? What chance do I have to begin this? Well, as I point out in the book, the most important thing, other than some of the things we've alluded to, is you really have to know the difference between what you need, want, or satisfied with, settle for, and choose. Need is food, air, and water. You don't need a relationship. You just don't. You're not gonna, most people are not gonna die if they have to be alone. When people who, you know, they survive COVID, we're not gonna die typically. What we want typically is just the ideal. Most people want someone they're attracted to can trust, can laugh with, uh, is honest. You know, there's these ideals we all want. Well, we certainly want it, okay. We want. That doesn't mean anything either. Because what really is important is you have to start to learn what satisfies you. Before you start looking for love, you have to know what satisfies you. And that differs from person to person. You may think you want something, as I allude in the book, many men, or I'm Talk about one example. One, I want a girlfriend or that's sexually responsive, that she wants to, you know, put two sure. cents, two cents in the bell jar whenever I want to. Right. Until 
this person, and this is very common, is paired with a woman who's very sexually active. And they can get done making love, and she will say, again. Right. And you could get done, and she could say, again. And after a while, that wears on a person where they realize, that doesn't satisfy me. Or you might think, I want someone who's intelligent or talkative. And then you're paired with someone that's intelligent and talkative. And you, this particular person may say, no, I want someone who's quieter. Until you have an idea what satisfies you, you're shooting in the dark. But through experience, if you know, okay, this is really what I'm looking, looking for. We talked the other day and you alluded to the hot crazy matrix. We're getting there. And if what pleases you, what satisfies you is someone that is real attractive and on your parameter, really not crazy. If that's all you're looking for, well, that's you. You're saying with some self and retrospection. And in fact, near the end of your book, you have a, an area where you said, am I ready to date or ready for a relationship? And you have a, uh, a little checkbook here, mm -hmm. almost a workbook part that I, I really like. Now, still to go back to these, you mentioned a caste system. I, I think there's always been one. Mm -hmm. I'll mention a, a story from my family. My mother, uh, bless her soul, was from the deep south. And they were what she would call red clay dirt farmers. And she remembers as a child aspiring to go to the city, aspiring to have a good job or good clothes or something. And she would say in a deep southern accent that she was told by a parent or an adult figure, that's not for the likes of us. It was ingrained in her psyche. She got tapes from the moment she was born that it's not for the likes of us. They had a caste mentality. Mm -hmm. And so that went deep into her psyche. And, and she eventually grew out of it. Or, uh, let's say, improved. Improved. So I, I will, I, I'm just going to put you on the spot one more time. How does one recognize these tapes that are either self-destructive or self-sabotaging like this so that you don't only apply to the jobs that are minimum wage? You don't only ask out women that you think you have a shot with because you are, feel so poorly about yourself you're going to go with somebody who automatically has problems or whatnot that isn't going to add right, in, right. to the relationship and feed you in this way that's going to grow into one of these wonderful lifelong relationships that I think most of us want. I'd reiterate, I think you have to start to monitor your self-talk. So if you see like this, let's say it from a male perspective, you see this woman that's very attractive. What are you saying to yourself? that no way, you're a loser, you can't do this, she won't like you. Right. You know, so you start to monitor your self-talk. And if your self-talk is negative and irrational, guilt people, especially people who are depressed, have self-talk that if a person 
follow them around saying out loud what they say to themselves, they would punch them out. Yeah. That you yeah. have, you know, for example, I don't know why I keep coming back to addiction because I do a lot of addiction work, but every addict has a good dog and a bad dog. I don't care how deep into the disease you are. Every addict has the capacity to get sober. And every addict, though they may be sober, has the capacity to relapse. So there's this inner dialogue that goes on between bad dog who says, you're a loser, you know, you want to use, don't resist me, 12 step doesn't work, yada, yada, yada. And the good dog which says, shut up, I'm going to work my own program, uh, I'm worthwhile, I can accomplish things. So when you start looking at am I ready is how do you encounter the world with your self-talk? Keep a journal if you want of what do you say to yourself. It can be quick. Some of these statements can be really quick. Like, oh, I would like to approach her. Oh, my body doesn't look like his. Or I don't have that or this. Or I need to have money. Or all these pre-qualifications. And again, what I want people to understand, truly, if you're in a meaningful, meaningful love relationship, what he or she should care about you is your essence, which a blind person it's devoid of the way you dress, what kind of clothes, how expensive they are, what kind of jewelry you have, how beautiful you are. It's what a blind person can appreciate about you. Things like empathy, ability to listen, to be genuine, to be honest, to have a sense of humor. People lose sight of that, and we spend so much money trying to have this kind of body and have this kind of look. And we lose sight of what people respond to often is people who are warm, empathic, listen, and are genuine. There's a lot of research that shows that. I love that thing about essence, and I, I, we're going to talk about it more in a little bit. There is a modern phenomenon of, called, of what I believe are called incels. These are people who are involuntarily celibate. Right. I guess the stereotypical one is somebody living in the basement doesn't think they, they are good enough looking. They're not a Ken or a Stacy. I think that's the, the, the terminology. And Barbie. Said, Gee. Barbie. Or Bar and, and Barbies too. And they just assume maybe it's an old tape, maybe it's it's learned, but they just assume they're not going to be able to attract uh, someone they can be intimate with and whatnot. And Rather than breaking out of it, they just kind of wallow in that pity pot and stay in that, uh, you know, in, in that basement on the computer. Well, this is something I think you're much more familiar with. My impression is, especially with younger people now, that they're not used to talking to each other. That they will say, I'm, I've talked to my girlfriend or boyfriend, or, and they texted that so much communication now is done by texting, that people are more anxious about, again, communicating face-to-face. -face. My impression, and you would know this, is there's more erectile dysfunction with young men because they're more anxious. That's at least why I understood. Maybe so. I don't, I'm not aware of, of any statistics. Okay. I couldn't say one way or the other. Yeah, I really loved what you said in the book about essence. What would a blind person appreciate? I remember thinking about this. It was a, an article about Ray Charles, the blind musician and mm -hmm. piano player. And it was, a, it was a reporter that went to his apartment 
and mentioned everything was plain. There were no pictures. There were no nothing up on the wall. Just purely functional. Yeah, he's boring. Yeah, right. He's boring. And it really made me think. You know, I, I don't know if he had a partner or a wife. I think he had a wife. And I remember thinking, wow, it doesn't matter how she looked. It matters her her. How does she treat him? What a perfect. You know, metaphor for essence about somebody who really is truly blind and is with somebody for those reasons, whether you want to call them pure or right. fulfilling or whatever, something that has some legs, you know, that has some longevity. Right. I laugh because I'm thinking about some people argue, I need to have premarital sex because how would I know that she's bad unless I have premarital sex? Right, the test drive. Yes. But if, let's say, this is your first sexual experience. How will you know she's bad? Right. It'll be, right. It'll it's be not what be that it good is. Anyway. And it's like, oh, well, huh. That's my yeah. baseline. Yeah. So I want to, some, a number of your um, case, cases here mm -hmm. involve people who are good looking and have problems. Now, most of us aren't that good looking. You don't have the problems of looks. I look at, let me just, tell you some of my thoughts about attractiveness and looks and uh, see what you, you think about it. First of all, as a reproductive biologist on one level, I can uh, deconstruct looks and say that we are programmed for beauty and the things we agree on as, uh, as beautiful have a biological root. If you look at the ideal female face for beauty, chin is small, the nose is small, the cheeks are large, the face is symmetrical, the eyes are a certain thing. There is a concept of beauty that happens to correlate with good genetics. Right? Body shape, body type correlates with genetics. Clear skin correlates with good hormones, reproductive potential. So I would argue that, that uh, Good looks, at least in our society, are not arbitrary, but are governed by some basic biological facts and that we are attracted to these people uh, because they may be healthier and more fertile. We're going to disagree. Because I think oftentimes good looks is very, very cultural. That you look back at... Um, but some of these are universal. If you look at faces on magazines, in Europe, Asia, United oh. States, and you take what's called an eigenvalue, a, an average of these Pre things, yes, presently, it is pretty universal. You, you look at models today, but you also look that there are times where Zoftic women, sure. that that's the uh, Rubens paintings, that was beautiful. There are societies where, you know, again, plates in the lips, that's beautiful. You have people now, and this is very different than my generation, that getting tattoos and ink and piercings makes someone more beautiful. To me, that doesn't. That is detracting. Sure. So let's just say it's not 100% universal, but I would argue that beauty does have biological basis, and, and there, is a, there is a hierarchy of beauty that does correspond with a hierarchy of uh, reproductive potential. I think we can, we yes. can agree at, I, least, I, on, I at think, least on that. Yes. I think that can change over time, and that can be culturally determined sometimes. Sure, modified. But I, I, would, I would argue that looks are not, 
purely superfluous. They're not just, hey, looks don't matter. I would argue that looks matter, but maybe shouldn't have this this incredible importance that they might now. Well, Are one you okay thing with I, that? I think we can keep in mind, and it's something that's always intrigued me throughout my, my career, is what people find attractive. You know, there's a song, I like big butts, I cannot lie. Well, sure. some people don't like big butts. Right. And some people don't like uh, some of the augmentations, and some people love the augmentations. What I always found intriguing is what people find erotic. The mm. neural pathways that create eroticism are confounding to me, is I sure. don't know why this person finds this attractive or appealing or erotic. That I think, yes, generally, I hear what you're saying. You can look at Elle McPherson, and you're going to say, she's a beautiful woman. Sure. Um, and you're not going to look at, uh, oh, mm. Judge Judy and... You know, and say... Although she might have been cute. She has nice cheekbones. She is kind of cute, but <laughs> maybe a bad example. Yeah. But I understand yeah. what you're saying, that there's... Biologically, there's some people who are more predisposed to be able to be considered attractive. Sure. Yeah, so I just want to make a, an argument that, that beauty... There is a role for beauty, and maybe it shouldn't have the, uh, the, the uh, priority it has. I, I saw an interesting... Uh, study just recently that attractive women's grades went down when they were zooming versus in person with their teachers ah interesting i found that interesting yeah i wonder how they studied that now another aspect of beauty i can tell you that men uh, get a tremendous ego pump when they walk in a room with a beautiful woman on their arm. On their arm. As a status symbol. The trophy wife. Mm -hmm. And this is this is a real thing. And and you could even take it, you could be James Bond with two beautiful women on both arms going <laughs> into uh, the Casino Royale or, or what have you. So there's this aspect of beauty too that is not necessarily it's it's for the guy himself and an ego pump uh and and a feeling of of self-worth and accomplishment that a man can have from the the trophy wife or the trophy girlfriend well, well, what do you think about that well, i think a man has to be very insecure for that to provide an ego pump um from my experience you don't think it's more universally don't you think most guys would rather be seen with a beautiful woman? I, I think and this will get personal. Um, I've had a woman. I was married to a, to a very beautiful woman. And what I found is people would come up to me and go, how'd you get her? What's she doing with you? That I didn't find half in jest, half in jest. Uh, I didn't take it as a joke. Right. Right. I mean, I mean again, sure. it's like, as you're alluding to what you think I'm a, piece of shit. Right. And you know, I don't deserve this. Right. So, I mean, did it give me a boost to be seen with her? Not consciously. Uh, did I like looking at her? Sure. Uh, I mean, one of the important factors of any relationship is you have to enjoy looking at your partner. Sure. I mean, you don't want to, to cringe when they take their clothes off, for example. 
Now, I think there is this kind of illusion. I, I call it high school, that you know, if I'm seen with a pretty girl, that's going to mean more for me. Sure. But most people who see like a beautiful woman with a guy that you think doesn't belong with her, just think, what is she doing with him? Sure, and that's going to get to transactional relationships that I want to get right. to and in you, a little bit. And you start bit. wondering about, you know, sugar daddy, or what is she doing with him? People don't think any more of him. And a man who goes, oh, I have more self-worth because I have this beautiful woman with me. Um, that's a person that has issues. That would take a long time. I don't think I put that in the book, but that would be another, another scenario to put in. Well, it, it comes up in some of your scenarios, in your case studies. It comes up a little bit. I thought it was a very important uh, topic to delve into with you because I don't think it's purely superficial. And it leads to something I wanted to talk about with you. When you talk about essence, I uh, was, was thinking about uh, looks and whatnot, and it, it brought me straight to this very uh, famous video that's on uh, the internet. Oh, no. It's on YouTube, and it's called The Hot Crazy Matrix. Yep. 10 million and views. I think. 10 million views. I think this video has some profound fallacies mm -hmm. and some profound ugly truths. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to do is put this video on right now and uh, talk about it with you for a little bit because I think your book talks about this uh, and has some, some important uh, insight into this situation. So here is this gentleman talking about the hot, crazy, crazy. matrix. And again, I reiterate, 10 million views on this. Right. This is a this is a phenomenon with spin-offs. Okay, so this is the universal hot crazy matrix. It's everything a young man needs to know about women. Um, I've developed this on my own over 46 years of living on the earth. So this is how it works. You have your crazy axis and your hot axis. Hot is, as usual, measured from 0 to 10. We're all familiar with that. Crazy is measured from 4 to 10 because, of course, there's no such thing as a woman who's not at least a 4 crazy. So you got 4 to 10. This is your hot crazy line right here. Very important that you keep in mind where the hot crazy line is. As a rule, this is your no-go zone. We do not hang around and date and marry women who are not, at least in our mind, a five. Um, so this is your no-go zone. You don't go here. We just rule this out. Life is better this way. Well, I want to stop there. I think there's some profound truths here and some profound things that are very disturbing. <laughs> go ahead first of all there's the ranking of people one to ten and, and as we alluded to uh, standards of beauty can change mm -hmm. and can can vary but mm -hmm. there's this general trend now what does one find beautiful and i think there's something horribly cruel here that he says is that somebody less than a five doesn't deserve a relationship i think this is horrible now 
if we're going to be fair, if this is a bell-shaped distribution, five is average. So he's saying here that anyone less than five, he's saying half of the population, or if it's women in, specific, in particular here, that half the women out there uh, are not dateable. Mm -hmm. And I think this is so sad. So sad. And, and conveys this, this perception that women may have that, that leads to so many things, including the plastic surgeries, including the eating disorders, and probably suicides. And I thought that when you talk about the, the essence of a person, not depending on their looks at all, what would a blind person appreciate? I thought that was a real good way, uh, Jerry, and I thought it was a very a highlight of your book to draw attention to this fallacy and this, this, this concept that many, many people believe. It is cruel. And I'll echo back to high school that there are the, you know, the, the jocks who were, you know, these are people that later in, in high school reunions, when their lives had decompensated. Peaked. Already they, peaked. Oh, yeah, they lived for high school. They would sit in the lunchroom, and as the women would, would exit with their trays, they would bark out ratings. Right, they'd be, the, be, yeah. be like, you know, one to ten kind of thing. Or, yeah. And when it got down to low, they would say, and this happened, you scag, get out of here. You scag, get out of here. Which now, so hurtful. So hurtful. So hurtful. The, you know, people like that, the bullies, I mean, those are the kind of people that perhaps later in life want to be seen with a beautiful woman because they think that makes them more in some people's eyes. It doesn't make, I don't, you know, I doubt when you see a man with a beautiful woman, you think, oh, I think more of him. It doesn't mean anything to me, any more than seeing a beautiful sunset. It's like, okay, good for you or not. It doesn't mean she's going to love him more or love him better, or it's a functional relationship, or they're happy, or they're sexually compatible, or recreationally compatible, or spiritually compatible. It doesn't mean anything. It just means people will go, oh, well, he's got, that woman's kind of attractive. Yes, it's cruel, and yes, it's sad, and yes, it's being judgmental. And one of the things which mitigate against a good relationship is being too prideful. Because if you're prideful, you're going to be selfish. You're not going to be sacrificial. And one of the important points I want to make is to have a good relationship, you have to be able to be sacrificial. We allude to, how do I feel good about myself? In the book, I talk about there is another well, the well of self-support. And I allude to that I'm very strongly spiritual. I go to the church called The Crossing here. And those who can have the vertical relationship with God can get filled up with God's love. Now, some people, as they hear this, are turned off to it. They don't understand it. They discount it. And it's, that's fine. I, I mean, I make a point in the book of saying, if you can't get, you know, you're well filled up that way, there are other ways to do it. But I want to emphasize that being prideful, not being sacrificial, not being able to fill your well is detrimental to you. So when you talk about how do I get ready or how do I have a relationship, 
or how do I regard what's important? You have to head, have your head on straight. If your head's not on straight, if you are caught up in superficiality and materialism, things which are not essence, the blind person doesn't care if you've driven in, in a Maserati. They don't care about that. They care whether you've come over, sat down next to them, asked them how they are, and maybe made them laugh with a joke or something. So when you get into something like this, and this is a joke, I mean, I don't the, think the, it is. There a are joke. some elements. There are some elements. It of is truth. humorous, yes. but I think it is such yes. profound. It's such a profound reflection on yes. society and relationships that it, it, it is yes. not a. It, there's humor, but this concept is not a joke, and that's yeah. why I wanted to talk to a professional, yes. Yes. like you, about it because it's it yes. bothers me on a certain level. Right now, I want to talk about the other axis, the crazy axis. Now, this is more personality. Emotional health, um, sanity, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. I think it was, it's very telling that it doesn't start at zero and goes to 10. It starts at four. It makes an assumption that every woman starts at around a four. Every woman has an inherent craziness. And later on in the video, as you know, he says, well, if you find a gorgeous woman who's absolutely not crazy, it's a dude because it was well, perfect you, you looking. Just that. Now, the woman's version of this has emotional unavailability of men. Right. And that starts at four. They tailor so, it to men. Yeah, no, no man is a zero either. So, so we're on the, the male describing a woman as it hot, crazy. Women have hot, emotionally unavailable. And yes, they started four. Now, yeah. are we all... Like, All a little crazy. I, I go back to an old line that Barbara Streisand sang, people, we're all children needing other children. It's, we're all a bit crazy, and it's all right. That's my point. It's okay. all right. Now, if you're hallucinating, if you've got something biochemically going sure. off in your brain, and you're seeing things you shouldn't, you have a neurological disturbance, you're hearing voices, you're paranoid, you know, you're, you're delusional. Well, that's an issue that hopefully you can get some help with. But yes, most people, we know what goes on with our thoughts backstage. And we see the front stage performances of everyone else. And we think they've got their act together. Right. And we know, again, our self-statements, our doubts, our fears, our insecurities, our Perversions, if you will. Sure. And it's like, other people don't have that. One of the things about being a psychologist is you realize there's more similarities between us all than their differences. And I'm going to repeat that. People think we are unique in many ways, but who we are and what we are, even those mass killers that I met, there are more similarities between them in all of us, then there are differences. That's comforting. That's comforting. And, and uh, um, to give another example of that, there's famous pictures of the Nazi concentration camp guards at home. They had compounds just outside with family and kids. And right. They look like just anybody else having dinner, playing you know, on the swings with their kids, yet they're doing these uh, abominable things. Uh, they're compartmentalized. So just to 
just talk about this a little more on this crazy axis or this emotion axis. I think this is where you're finding the essence that you talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, the quality of, of, of action, quality of caring, the quality of sacrifice. Empathy, listening, kindness, sense of humor. I mean, think of the things which make you connect with someone. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And I also want your opinion on this. How does one develop and grow from maybe the eight crazy to the four crazy, more baseline? How can one go about this, Jerry? Um, addressing these old tapes. I keep going back to the old tapes because mm-hmm. they, they have profound sure. effect on my life and, and everyone around me that I see. Uh, what, what are ways that we can improve this aspect of our life so that we can then become this person that can attract and hold and have a long-term fulfilling relationship with somebody else. It's difficult because what I think will keep people in their relationship is humility, pride again. I've alluded to this, being sacrificial. It's very difficult, though, to be sacrificial. It means if your wife or friend or whatever wants to go down and watch some birds on Sunday when the Chiefs are playing, you go down and watch birds. A lot of people don't want to do that. Right. So how do I get to the place where I'm communicating legitimately, authentically, I care about you. I care about God the most. And after God, I'm going to care about you. Because I don't want people to believe that I'm endorsing your relational bliss is idolatry. In other words, that's more important than your relationship with God. I I do not want to communicate that. But how do people get to the place where I'm understanding, accepting, and forgiving. Who am I to judge you? Who am I to not forgive you? I mean, that's one of the the tenets, again, of of Christianity, is you forgive as you've been forgiven. And truly, you can do that. Then who am I to be angry at you? I'm angry at you because your sin behavior is different than my sin behavior. So why am I angry with you? You mess up, I mess up. And so if you have that humility, then it's a different ball game. But when we're judgmental and we play an anger game called Nicky Sob, N-I-G-Y-S-O-B, now I've got you, you son of a bitch. Ah. It's an anger game. You wait for someone to make a mistake and you leap upon them. You've made a mistake. And there are people that keep this in their minds. They remember everything a person's done throughout the entirety of the relationship. They're unforgiving. And when you talk about what leads to the anger reservoir building up mm-hmm. and get them to the point of, I'm not happy with you. You're not making me happy. Anytime you hear that, there's trouble. Because I understand you want your, your mate to be happy. The person who's responsible for your happiness is, guess who? You. The codependent serenity prayer is, Lord, give me the serenity. Accept. There are people I cannot... Sh- change 
the, the wisdom to know there's one person I can change, the courage to know there's one person I can change, and the wisdom to know that one person is me. It's me. The only person I'm responsible for is me. And when I'm looking for my spouse, you're supposed to make me happy. There's trouble. There's trouble there. I see patients frequently, just saw one today, that have been abused as children, sexually assaulted, what have you. And we have to, they want to get pregnant. We have to do intimate examinations. And they're scared and fearful and guarding. And something that I say is that these monsters that you have today with insight, maybe therapy, and love, and time, and a toolbox that may only have a couple little coping mechanisms, but one that eventually gets bigger and more encompassing, allows these monsters to become just little, little, little dragons that sometimes come to tea. I learned that from a, uh, a man I look up to named Ram Das or Richard Alpert. Um, so can you talk more as a professional psychologist, what can people do to grow that toolbox? Coping mechanisms of, of things that they can do to improve themselves and work on themselves, to improve as people, and once again, get back to relationships that can be uh, nourishing and longstanding. I think with most things, if you know what your goal is, and if you can break it down into hierarchies and be patient ah. and be patient. I mean, to me, the whole thing about building friendship is built on a hierarchy. Now, things have changed, but it used to be, for example, if I wanted to, um, when I was single, meet a woman in the gym, I would begin by, hello. A couple of weeks later, how you doing? A couple of weeks later, uh, how's your workout? couple of weeks later, what are you doing this weekend? So it's very gradual, a lot of patience, you're building your hierarchy. And if they're engaging you, and again, if they want to engage you, they will. I mean, you will you can not. tell. You, can, you will not. You, you can tell that, but you're building a, a hierarchy of intimacy. People nowadays, it's like, it's so different. Like something like Tinder, you're going from one to a hundred like that. And it's very unnatural to do that. So how, how can you start to realize what's my goal, but realistically, how do I break that down and be patient and go from this step to this step? Like to make friends. Mm -hmm. How do I do that in a way that's not creepy? Nowadays, people are really, it's very off-putting that people are approaching you now. People aren't used to people coming up. You know me because we work out in the same gym. Right. I'm kind of the patriarch. Work in the place. same hospital. You know, and it's like I go up to people and I talk to them. A lot of people aren't used to that, mm -hmm. of people visiting with them and talking with them. So, in a practical way, ways that we can improve our emotional health, our attitude towards life, is patience with ourselves. Know where you want to go. Where do you want to go? I mean, really, really. Think, and really plan it out. Is that what you're saying, Jerry? You got to really come up with a plan. One of the ways, for example, of most things in life is you have steps. And you don't go from one to a hundred, but you go to a step. Like, I want to make more friends. Okay. Okay. Say hello to step one, say hello to five people you haven't said hello to. That's a very low level type of step. 
And then you start building up to where at some point you want to go to lunch, which is not step two. I mean, you start, it's a hierarchy that you just get into that makes sense for you. Gotcha. So let's say we're working on ourselves. We've had some personal insight. We thought of a goal. We realized that we've had some unproductive tapes. We're starting to grow and evolve as a human being. We want a relationship. You have come up with a wonderful checklist that says, are you ready to date? And I love this. And it starts out again with this, this, this nugget. I know my essence and what a blind person can appreciate mm -hmm. about me. Mm -hmm. I like how you keep going back to that. I feel if someone got close to me, they could like me and not expect them to reject me. Mm -hmm. Once again, that comes from a, a position of, of confidence that one may have to build. Well, it, may, it may not be an A. You may right. not have learned that from your parents. We talked about that earlier, right. I'm not too self-critical and judgmental of myself and my conversations after I socialize. So that's the being kind to oneself. That's self-statements. There are people, Gil, that after they socialize, they take themselves into the proverbial next room and beat themselves up. Did mm. you say that to them? Replay it. Oh, they replay yeah. it. I mean, they make it adversive. And if you do that when you're socializing, of course you don't want to socialize. Oh, you you sounded so stupid. Oh, your joke was so lame. Right. Oh, you look so bad. Oh, I could have said this. Oh, yeah. what, oh what, you, what you had on is so, uh, right. so nerdy. Oh, mm. you look so fat. You know, it's like, whoa. We got to be nice to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that always bugs me. I don't talk about my ex when I start dating a new person. Boy, I hate when people... Talk about their exes. Yep, that's that's a big one. If you're still talking about your ex to someone you're going out with that's new, you ain't ready to date. Nah, I don't do that. That's, like, that's right up there with talking about bowel movements. I don't <laughs> want to know. Here's a very constructive one here. And this, is, this goes along the idea of personal growth and insight that we can develop about ourselves. I have a good idea how I contributed to my past relationship mm -hmm. fellows. That's those, those I statements. What did I do? Can I change myself? Right. What did I do wrong? Was I too, for example, prideful? Was I too selfish? Was I too... A lot of women react to a man that is, they perceive him as overly sexual. Mm -hmm. All you want is sex with me. Right. And that's a turnoff for many women. Sure. Sure. What did you do wrong? Another bullet point. I can be alone without being lonely. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, this is something that in my life has blossomed perhaps in the past 10, 20 years. I enjoy, my wife and children will travel. I'll be at home some nights by myself. I really enjoy that time. Mm -hmm. Read, practice a musical instrument and whatnot. I'm looking at how many days do I have left in my life. This is precious time and I don't, Whereas if I were a teenager in my 20s, I'd say, what am I doing? Where's the party? Where's the girls, right? Now this being alone is not lonely. In fact, it, it's very precious time for me. Mm -hmm. And I've got to say that I, I wasn't born with this. This is something that has come with age. Very fortunate. You know, again, being alone is you're by yourself by choice. 
Mm. But being lonely, you're by yourself, not by choice. And there's a real difference there that being able to be alone can be a real gift that people enjoy. It's a, it's a present. Uh, I've seen people, you know, young mothers mm-hmm. who drop their child off at daycare at Wilson's, for example, and leave the building because they ah. just want to be by themselves for a while. It, that's a real gift. Yes. That's yeah. Real gift. Yeah. And I have good pastimes to keep me occupied and happy that that's, that's once again, I'm like, now, I I'm, I'm going to reiterate too. good sure. pastimes. I have a saying only fools have pastimes which aggravate them. And so if ah. your pastimes are aggravating you, and I tended to be a fool throughout much of my life. Really? Where the Cardinals or the Chiefs would <laughs> aggravate me. Or In New I, Jersey, it's the Giants. Oh, always the heartbreak. Or I would gamble, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd gamble or bet or, or, you know, like some of the things that I would access. Even now, like news, it's like it aggravates me. And it's like, why am I doing this? Some of the social platforms I go to online are aggravating. You leave feeling angrier than when you, you know, began searching posts on on, right, on, on a right. board. And it's like, okay, do I have pastimes which don't aggravate me? I love this next one. I don't feel my partner should be responsible for my own happiness. So we that, talked about. Yeah, that's kind of a corollary of this being alone and not being lonely. That's really important. So I guess this is a... Know, as far as uh, introspection, if, if this brings up something, somebody watching this were to say, well, gee, I, I really have trouble with that. Well, there you go. There's an action item. And this is where your book can help kind of focus maybe the attention on productive things one can do. Right. We, we talk a lot in the book, or at least I talk a lot in the book about codependency and how destructive that is when you're in a codependent relationship, which isn't functional. You have someone who's the enabler, giving, and you have someone who's taking. And many relationships begin with that. That person gives and does it out of love. And honey, give me a beer. She does. Honey, make me a sandwich. She does. Um, Honey, do this. Honey, do that. She does. She does. It's typically, you know, the, the woman to the man. But then over time, there comes the point where there's a revolt where she says, get your own damn beer, right. make your own damn sandwich. And at that point, the person who had been giving the command sees that as a revolt. And there's a lot of anger that gets dumped. Because typically a person has stored years of anger. Have I done, I've done this for you and I've did that for you. And you don't appreciate me and you don't love mm. me and you don't make me happy. And it's like, that's how messed up this has gotten. Well, is it my role? And this is one thing that I talk about a lot in the book, is recognize what you have to discuss before you enter into a serious relationship. There's a checklist in there about compatibility. Yes. And it focuses on many issues people do not discuss out loud of who should go to work, how many hours should you work, who should make the decision? If if you're the breadwinner and I'm home with the kids, should you have more discretionary money to spend on you? Or how do we spend money? Or how, you know, do we want to 
you know, travel or what do we want to do? There's an extensive checklist, uh, which is original in the book about compatibility. And yeah. you have to face these issues. I want to get to that in just a second. So I just want to just briefly talk about some other things here. Do I have social skills that allow me to converse and listen? Um, can I resolve conflicts and not hold a grudge? Can I be forgiven? These are all things that we may not have, we may not be very good at, but certainly things, if we can work on them and improve this aspect of ourselves, certainly we'll, we'll, have, we'll reap benefits when we do want to have a relationship. Exactly. So the next thing I think is really practical in your book is this actual compatibility checklist. Mm -hmm. And it talks about attitude towards work, um, <clears throat> building a career, you know, uh, political compatibility, that's attitudes a, towards a big one. sex. That's oh, a big yeah. one. It, that never used to be what it is now, but that is a big one now where you, you'll see people on whatever end of the spectrum they are, saying, I could not date someone on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. Attitude towards money, attitude towards child rearing. And I'll share something personal. I've been married twice. My, my first marriage failed. Um, I'm still friends with her. It just wasn't, it wasn't to be, and we parted amicably, thank goodness. When we started dating in our late 30s, we knew what we wanted. And I remember on our second date. You knew what satisfied you. I, we knew, and she did too. What satisfied you. Not what you wanted, but what satisfied you. Yes. There's a and difference. And as I was going through, and I happen to be in a fantastic marriage. We've been married almost 20 years now. Congratulations. I'm so blessed. Um, I would say I'm lucky. Maybe there's some luck involved, but there's there's the work too, and I know I'm a... Personally, I'm a better person than I was when I, when I got into my first uh, relationship. And I was really happy. I was looking through this compatibility test, and my wife and I organically had this conversation, our second and third date. Mm. We really did. Because at that point, we were in our late 30s. Did this before. We, weren't gonna, we didn't want to waste time. Mm -hmm. Comfortable with ourselves enough to put out there what we liked didn't like and what we were looking forward to and i will just tell you that i didn't read your book when i did this it was uh it was a natural thing that mm -hmm. happened from two fairly i'm going to say well-adjusted people and it has borne fruit so i will tell you these 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 items you mentioned in your book i will tell you from personal experience very valuable very effective um, very practical, and it's good stuff, Jerry. Well, uh, thank you. And, you know, you asked me one of the first questions of basically why did I write it. And I wanted to bring to consciousness things that perhaps people don't consider. Again, it's, it's what we talked about earlier, to put adult eyes on this. Because a lot of times this just isn't discussed of, are you aware of this? Just be aware of it and talk about it. There may not be a solution to it. And there's this awareness, though. It's okay to be angry with your spouse, your partner. You're going to be angry with your spouse and partner. It's what do we do about it now? There are going to be problems. What do we do about it now? There are going to be times that you're going to love the hell out of them, 
and you're going to hate the hell out of them because there's a fine line between love and hate sometimes. And there are going to be periods of time where you think, I went out of this. And there are going to be periods of time where you think, I can't live without them. One of the things I talk about and I caution people is before you make a real dramatic decision about many things, the relationship, taking a job, moving, whatever substantial decision it may be, do what I call put it in protocol. In other words, give it two weeks, two solid weeks. If you think for two solid weeks, I went out of this relationship, that's more serious than if it's like, well, you sleep on it a day or two, and what were we even fighting about? When relationships break down is because the fire, that bonfire, has been covered by dirt. Yeah, I've dealt with couples, and that's part of what marital therapy is, is can we rekindle that? In the book, spend a lot of time talking about what happens when a dump truck is put on the fire, an affair happens. Mm. A person's been caught having an affair. Can we get through this? Can we rekindle? My experience, and talk about in the, in the book with couples, is yeah, you can. There's some things you can do that, again, hopefully this edifies. It's like most things may appear to be a deal breaker. And we talk a lot in this book about deal breakers. Most things, again, if you're humble, you're not prideful, if you're forgiving, it's, again, why am I that angry with you? I have problems. I have issues. Okay. Can we learn from this and go on? One of the things that I hope people can do is have what I call one trial learning. There's some people, Gil, that are not one trial learners. One trial? One trial. They mess up like they have an affair. For some people, I will never have an affair again. And for some, they're serial adulterers. Right. It's it's like, again, um, there's some people, addicts, that they get sober and that's it for them. They, especially once they get clean, like let's say off of an opiate, and they go through the withdrawal and everything, that I'll never do that again. And they don't. And there are other people, I just saw this, you know, uh, Matthew Perry did a special. And I think he talked about being in rehab like 17 times or something. Really? I mean, it's like they just keep revisiting and revisiting. And that's because you're self-destructive, which you you alluded to people who have a need because they're so angry with themselves that they feel that guilt and that shame when things start going well, they will sabotage themselves at the root of that is shame and guilt that. And again, that's what you put a dull eyes on is what am I feeling shame and guilt about? Well, I did this and I did that. Well, how long ago was it? And can you learn from it? And if you can learn from it, Will you not do it again? And if they say, I'm not going to do that again, fine, let it go. But what's that core of why many people feel, I don't deserve it. I deserve right. to be punished. Punished right. is this inherent guilt and shame about what they've done. Most people do not talk about their top secret. I caution anyone out there, think of what your top secret is. And if you haven't shared that, that's what feeds your guilt and your shame. And that's what creates issues in your life. Well, that's the last topic I wanted to talk about. 
One is only as sick as their secrets and generally their worst secret. Mm-hmm. And since you've mentioned 12 step, I deal with a lot of people uh, in my office who are infertile because of alcoholism, porn addiction, uh, running, they're called process addictions. All these things can cause infertility when done to excess. Really? Mm. Yeah, yeah. W- women can run until they they starve. Well, they don't ovulate anymore. And they don't ovulate mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, these are all these addict. These are all these things. These these reward centers in our brain that, through evolution, ha- have allowed us to survive. You know, and 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 uh, and seek out uh, pleasurable things. And I've got this this wonderful little story about secrets and. You know that confession has been used throughout the ages. Obviously, when you think confession, you think Catholicism. But there have been uh, similar things uh, throughout history. And uh, I'm aware of the recovery community because of uh, all the people I treat. And I've heard that there's this, you mentioned this uh, fifth step where you talk about, you know, your, in part, your deepest, darkest fears. And this is usually done with someone called a sponsor. Mm-hmm. And there's this wonderful anecdote about this. Uh, happens to be a man He's going through all his character defects. And he gets to that last fear, that super secret thing that he's been so ashamed of. At the very end, he goes, and I had sex with a chicken. <laughs> and the sponsor, without missing a beat, goes, well, did yours die? <laughs> I have not heard that. But yeah, did yours die? Meaning, I know. you think you're so, you're the only person with this secret. You're the only person that's been molested as a child. You've only been the only that's been beaten. You've only been the only person that's had, you know, has had unfortunate things happen. And you find out almost everybody else has had horrible things happen too. You're not alone. It's your top secret. You're right. The, the secrets we keep in and how they affect us is hard to study because people aren't forthcoming. Sure. When I used to consult in like federal penitentiary, which I alluded to before, one of the first thing the offenders would say as you would sit down with them is, don't look at us, you know, that way. Tell me you haven't committed a felony at some point. Most people have. Most of us have at some point or another, driving drunk or whatever, done something which could have resulted in a serious felony. People have secrets that they did things, especially when we're young, when we're certain people's ages, we're crazy. And we do things, especially under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Or peer pressure. Peer pressure that are, you know, the famous old joke, Redneck's Final Words. Here, hold my beer. Hold my beer. Hey, y'all watch. <laughs> hey, y'all watch this. It's like they're just crazy. Um, I had a friend just recently talk about his 16 year old just got a driver's license, and he's down by uh, a local uh, landscape doing dangerous maneuvers in the car and tips the car. Mm. You know, now there could have been a passenger there who could have been seriously injured, and that could have been his top secret the rest of his life that he felt bad about, that people do things which are violent or sexual when they're especially young, but even as adults, 
but it's how do I get on the right side of myself with this? As I alluded to before, how can I, if I can forgive as I've been forgiven other people, and this is where, again, uh, my spirituality enters in. Because if you understand Christianity, what it's all about is that Jesus came to bestow the gift of grace on people. What this is about is, is undeserved mercy. A lot of people understand grace. They don't feel grace. It's like a, a couple that can't wait to give a child a tremendous Christmas present, this big present. And Christmas Day comes, and they're so excited, and they give the child this great present. And they're so excited, and the child unwraps the present, and they go away for an hour, and they come back to see the child play. And the child's playing with the box. The box. And, I love it. And not, love the, it. not the present. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we do with grace. So when I deal with people, that's why when I deal with people who can receive grace, which is undeserved mercy, they can forgive to a much greater degree. And when I say to other people, as I did before, about the emotional support and the vertical relationship, you have to get there a different way. You have to get to a place of how, if I don't believe in this, if I don't believe in grace, if I don't believe that this has been given, this presence has been given to me, of how do I get to a place of forgiveness? You can get there. It's more difficult. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing your personal experience with Christianity, and I would add that there are different ways to get there. Exactly. But I think the, what you're saying is, is really, really important, Jerry. It's, it's easy. When I, again, as a clinician, it was easier to deal with people who could forgive as being forgiven and could receive grace. Those who don't believe that, and there are people who will listen to this who probably would have liked a lot that we've talked about but won't be able to assimilate this or digest it. It's all right. That's the okay. issue is, okay, well, how else can I get there? We all follow our path. And um, I want to say, Jerry, this has been a uh, tremendously uh, stimulating conversation. I think you uh, make a strong argument for perhaps going to a counselor or psychologist if you identify these issues and you can't just write them down and fix them yourself. I think you've written a wonderful book called Relationship Boot Camp. I think it hits on uh, very, very important universal truths. And I really appreciate you sharing your experience well, and your wisdom you. with us tonight. Thanks for having Jerry. me. And I really hope that the Dr. Guild podcast becomes universal. Thank you, my friend. What a wonderful time of conversation.